Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Yeah, you know, Russell has self-esteem issues, and I got to tell you, so many of you do. If you're an addict, I guarantee you, you have self-esteem issues. If you didn't have them before, you got them now because what you've been doing is wrong, and you know it. And you know that, and this is not meant to be judgmental, but even though I'm not sure that we're meant to be a monogamous society, what I do believe to be true is that we are in a culture that absolutely embraces that and the benefits from that are huge. Okay, now I say that, and in addition to that, what I do know is that we are inundated with information, with ads, with media that encourages us to look at everybody, everything, and want what we don't have. And when you want what you don't have, it is easy to create the compulsion to figure out what to do to get it. And that's not healthy. I'm here to tell you that you can't have a monogamous relationship and always be looking at the other side of the street. You know, the old saying, the grass is always greener. Well, yeah, it is because we don't know what's over there on the other side, and we don't know what it's like to pick up their dirty clothes, to um, clean their car, to pick up their Kleenex, to watch them fart. You know, I mean, come on now. We're being real, and to be real means that we have to accept the 
people we love for what they have to offer us and to who they are and to what they can contribute to our lives. Now, I'm a believer in the five languages of love. I'm just finishing up an article on that. And if we are emotionally evolved, we work on giving to our partner what they don't have. And I know many of you would think, well, a sex addict must need physical touch first and foremost out of the five love languages. And again, the love languages are gifts, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, and words of affirmation. But I started out the show by saying that truly sex addicts have low self-esteem. So whether they were born with it, whether they learned it as a kid, or whether they feel it now because they have not been doing the right thing, more often than not, they need words of affirmation to get them over the hump. So if you're a partner listening to the show, you have undoubtedly felt so betrayed and angered that it's really hard to say anything positive to him or her because you don't feel that because they've hurt you. But I'm asking you to work into some emotional maturity and recognize how they've changed. And on occasion, just occasion, I want you to say to them, I know you're working hard and I love you. Or, if you can't go, I love you, then say, I know you're working hard and I notice. Or, I appreciate the fact that you were reading your recovery material last night. Or, thank you for taking the kids to the play and giving me some time to take care of myself. And if you're a sex addict working with a partner, I would love for you to say, you know, I want you to know I know I caused this and I'll do whatever it takes to make it better. Or, you know, honey, take care of yourself tonight. I have... Miles and miles of making up to do. And if you would take care of yourself tonight, I'll take care of everything else. I'll put the dishes in the dishwasher. I'll start that load of laundry and I'll put the kids to bed. Or, honey, I really want you to have a good week. And I want to know where can I take you this week to show you you are special and I love you. And I get, finally I get, what it takes to be a good husband. Please let me do it now and tell me when I'm wrong. Okay, those are all kind of words of affirmation, and I'd like for you to try that. Now, if you remember last week, I was talking with a woman who kind of questioned the general belief that if you are a partner of a sex addict, perhaps you have attracted them into your life because of your own unresolved issues. And you know I'm Carol, a coach, and I do partner trainings, and I first and foremost want to say to you, you did not attract this into your life. You know what happened to you 
was a complete surprise, and the addict spent minutes, hours, weeks, months, and years fooling you. And all of that is absolutely true. And I'm a marital therapist, and what I know to be true is sometimes we attract into our lives the things we need to work on. For instance, I came from a family that did not encourage me. They did not acknowledge me verbally. There were no words of affirmation there. But I knew I was important to them. And I was always looking for those words of affirmation. So who did I marry? I married a man who was incredibly loyal and faithful, but he sure doesn't say nice things to me. He doesn't tell me I'm beautiful. He doesn't tell me how much he loves me. He doesn't do any of that. So as an emotionally mature person, what I have to do is tell myself, you know what? I can focus on what I'm not getting, or I can focus on what he gives me. Like I said, he gives me loyalty. He gives me a lot of acts of service. Oh, my goodness. He washes my car every week. He keeps our house clean. You, If you've been listening to this show, you know I've never had to even do a toilet bowl. He's that efficient. And he loves quality time with me. Um, He loves to share that with other people. I mean, he's always saying, hey, who can we invite over? But at the same time, he loves our relationship. He loves that I afford him an opportunity to have a really good life. Okay. So I focus on those things. I don't focus on the fact that he doesn't say, hey, you're gorgeous, or he doesn't say, you look nice, or honey, I like that dress, or I love you so much. You know, that's not his style. He's not a words of affirmation guy. But guess what? He does need that. And that's what's been so fascinating for me when I did the love languages. And when I assumed physical touch was his love language, because for many men it is, I was shocked to find out that the very thing he didn't give me, he actually craved. And when I gave it to him... When I said, hey, honey, thank you so much for doing that for me. I so appreciate it. You're amazing. He'd look at me, tears in the headlight, and he'd say, who the heck has taken my wife? Who is in my wife right now? Because that is not my wife. And so he would actually kind of reject the sweet things I would say to him because he wasn't comfortable. But... That was still his love language. So I'm going to ask you to go to your, go to the website, the five love languages, Dr. Gary Chapman, and you both take that test and see what each one of you has as your primary love language and make your life better. Even though you're in crisis, do that now. And for my um, reader and listener, who thought that maybe she was responsible in some way for attracting her addict. She said, if, however, the human magnet syndrome is true, and I'm only addicted to the relationship because I 
have to work things out. Is there hope for me? She then says, once the craving and obsessing starts, it's too late and nothing I do will help me. I don't know how to avoid men I'm attracted to and why would I? I am not dating, but I hear various stories in recovery that my picker is broken, so I should never respond to a man I find attractive. This is a woman, by the way, who is not a partner, but she is and wonders. Well, she identifies as a sex and a love addict. So here we go. She wonders if her picker is broken. She thinks she's codependent. She fears she only attracts narcissists and anxious love addicts attract avoidant types. Well, that is true. There is this theory that if you love somebody and you have a love addiction, then you will probably be considered what we call the love pursuant, and you will end up with a love avoidant. Well, that's only if you've experienced that in your childhood and you're reenacting the trauma. So she says, it's when I'm left during the first falling in love period or after I feel that my partner is good, stable, self-sufficient, and leaves that I'm devastated. When the bums with no ambition leave me, I get over them pretty quickly. Is there ever hope for me finding love? She says, my AA sponsor of five years plus suggested I give it up. It'll never happen. However, I have found Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and a sponsor, and I'm working with a therapist on DBT, and I'm also talking about EMDR, and I'm excited that I can be reprogrammed. I'm going to ask her this question as well, but wanted to get your CSAP perspective. Your life, uh, your podcasts have really been lifesavers since June of 2016. So, is there any hope for me? Well, absolutely. As much work as you're doing tells me, as an addict, there is plenty of hope for you. And you've got a good therapist. You're working on DBT so that you realize that there may be some behaviors you demonstrate that pull people in and then push them out. And do I think you attract um, people in your life that don't give you what you need? Um, I don't think you attract that, but here's what I know to be true. It's hard to have a good picker if you're really working on yourself and you got a lot of work to do. So I would encourage you to take some time off anywhere from six months to a year. I know that feels like a huge amount of time, but it really isn't. And keep working on you. And when you invest in your own emotional love tank for a year and you work with a sponsor and you stay with your 12-step group, there is no doubt in my mind that you can be the person you want to be and that your picker, as you put it, will be repaired And that you'll start trusting yourself so that when you're with somebody and your picker says, you know what, this this guy's selfish, you'll no longer continue to see that person. You'll trust your own intuition and you'll go for somebody else. And that's because you've worked so hard on yourself and to say, I'm not going to settle. 
So I hope that gives you some hope, strength, and recovery because you are worth it and you can work these things out. I have no doubt about that. Keep working on you. Keep working with SLAA. Keep working with your sponsor. And keep me posted on how you're doing. Because when you work it, it works, and that's what I promise for you. Now, tonight I'm excited because I'm interviewing a woman who is the producer and host of the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast, and she's the founder of Betrayal Trauma Recovery. So if you're a partner of a loved one, a love addict, or a sex addict, if you are somebody that does not know how to create your own sense of boundaries, your own sense of self, if you really want to be able to engage in a relationship that's healthy, you get to decide how you do that. You either stay with this person and see if you can't work it out, or you know when to leave and you move on and you find the right person. But This woman had really experienced a lot of betrayal in her own life, and after years of attempting to help her husband recover from his pornography addiction and his anger issues, um, she decided that one of the things she could do was to educate women about how to safely and effectively navigate their husband's sex addiction and related behaviors, and she has created this recovery program where there are lots of coaches that have been certified by APSETS, and you know APSETS is the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. That's what I am. And these people know how to help partners so that you don't feel guilty, or like my last emailer who thought maybe she had... um, magnetically attracted the sex addict into her life. So, Anne, welcome to the show, and I'm just so thrilled to have you on because you have really made it your mission to help partners of sex addicts. Thank you so much, Carol. It's good to be here. Yes, I am so impressed with how much work you have done and how it has occurred out of your own trauma and your own recovery. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You know, what made you start podcasting and and how did you deal with your own traumatic experience? What happened? So my then husband's pornography and sexual addiction escalated out of control after years of trying to help him. And um, when I say trying to help him, I think now I know that that was enabling. (laughs) But as I tried to hold my family together, he ended up assaulting me and he was arrested and removed from our home. And that was my rock bottom. I just knew then that like I could not go on the way that I was living before. So I began working on my own recovery. And about nine months after his arrest, I just had this really strong feeling that I needed to start a podcast to talk about my experience in real time. I, Anne Blythe is a, a pseudonym. It's not my real name. And um, so I was talking about what was happening as it was happening. And my betrayal trauma symptoms, they've been pretty intense for a number of reasons. And I, I know your listeners are familiar with betrayal trauma. So it's been pretty intense. And 
um, I'm really grateful for all the people who have listened and helped support me in my recovery. Well, you know, you said, you know, my listeners are all pretty familiar, and I do believe that most of them are, but we have new listeners every single week. So describe what betrayal trauma is. For me, it's like obsessive thoughts, um, trying to safety-seeking and um, those types of behaviors that might be considered to some people um, crazy. (laughs) You know, I'm not trying to control my husband. I'm just trying to get safety again, and I can't figure out how to do it because he's not safe. And so I like obsessive thoughts, hypervigilance, anxiety, depression, worry, sleep problems, a lot of symptoms. It differs with every woman that cause trauma and just absolute stress in your life. And for me, the, the one that I deal with the most is obsessive thoughts, like this argument that I have in my head about why things should be a certain way just over and over and over. And that's been, for me, the hardest betrayal trauma symptom to overcome. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you said it beautifully because when a partner has been betrayed, there are lots of automatic central nervous responses that occur to the betrayal. You know, they they feel Mm -hmm. anxious, they feel scared, they feel hypervigilant, they feel angry. And so obviously... Not only did you have to deal with his betrayal, but then in in lots of ways you had to deal with um, your pending impending danger. Mm-hmm. So you're not with him right now. Right. Yeah. After his arrest, I held a no contact boundary, and that was given to him by the court. And while I had that space, I was able to learn more about what was happening to me and what was going on. And all of a sudden, it was like just light bulbs popping all over the place that I had been a victim of abuse, gaslighting, lying, manipulation for about seven years. Also, that he was never really in recovery, which I think because I wasn't in recovery, I didn't know what to look for. And so I just believed his lies and believed what he was telling me, even though his behaviors were still very dangerous. Well, absolutely. And so how did you figure out that he was not good for you and that you needed to separate from him? Well, after his arrest, it became very clear. Um, At the time, I was praying to know if I needed to be separated and how to do that. And I was praying and praying and praying and I wasn't getting any support from my church leader or my therapist. I kept telling them, I think that the abuse is escalating. I think we need to separate. And they kept kind of trying to talk me off the ledge, sort of like, he's a great guy. I don't know, you know, sort of, why are you so upset about this? And I just prayed for a clear sign that he needed to be out of the home. And I thought that when I got that clear sign, I would go to them and say, okay, this is the clear sign that he needs to be out of the home. Will you please help me get him out? Because he as I, I asked him over and over again, I think we need to separate. I don't feel comfortable with you. And he said, nope, my name is on the deed of our home. I am staying here. I am not leaving. Anyway, so when he um, assaulted me, he pushed my fingers back and he pushed me against the kitchen cabinets. I knew that that was 
my sign, but I didn't know what to do. And I packed my kids in the car and I took them up to my parents' house. And then I went to the doctor and I told the doctor what had happened. And the doctor called the police and the police went that night and removed him from our home. Well, you had, with the help of at least your doctor, the foresight to realize that you needed to be safe first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you were up against a bunch of professionals who did not encourage you to do that. No, my husband think? was... Oh, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, what do you think in contributed yeah, and to that? I think uh, my husband is, or ex-husband, so manipulative and so able to convince people of the true situation that even though I was seeing flat out my husband's pornography addict, he has not stopped viewing pornography. He's also verbally assaulting me. He's punching walls. He always had a really good reason for it. And the reason was that I asked him too many questions or that I did this or that I did that. And so my church leader and the therapist that we were going to at the time uh, just thought it was, they tried to remain neutral, quote unquote neutral. And that may work for some situations, but in a situation of abuse and sexual addiction, remaining neutral is actually siding with the abuser because that's what they want. They would like people to remain neutral so that it's, both people's problems because then the person who's being abused has a very difficult time getting help. And so I couldn't figure out a way to get out from under that because they're, they were viewing us as, okay, well, there's her side of the story and there's his side of the story. And the truth must be somewhere in the middle when that wasn't the case at all. I was telling the truth and he was lying. And then it just, I couldn't gain any traction or try to figure out what to do or get any help. And it was terrifying. And thinking about it even now, that's part of my trauma is thinking about that situation even now where I'm actively seeking help and not able to get it. It was just, it, it's so, it causes so much anxiety. Like my stomach scrunches up and I kind of just start breathing heavy. And I think, you know, I, I can't believe that even if you, sometimes if you're trying to get help, it's still very difficult. Well, absolutely, and I have to commend you because clearly there was something inside of you that knew that even though people were discouraging you, there was no reason for you to be treated like this, and you had to get some help. Mm-hmm. Yep. So now, obviously, you're a person who figured it out and did your due diligence, and actually you've turned this whole um horrible situation into some hope, strength, and recovery because you've started this podcast. So say a little bit about that. So, yeah, in the process of reaching out through my personal story, I received a lot of emails. Um, At first, I was podcasting about my 12-step experience because I started attending a 12-step group and just what was happening with that. And then um, I had some friends, actually, who were apps trained. So I started talking with them and I was really excited to be able to share what I was learning. And then I started receiving, you know, lots of emails from women from all over and knowing that sexual addiction is affecting wives of sexual addicts worldwide. I decided to start a nonprofit online coaching practice with only app coaches, 
which you mentioned earlier, was the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. And I decided to use these specifically trained coaches because I had been so traumatized by the professionals and church leaders who were not able to help me or even understand what was happening. So APSAT's coaches, in my view, and you are one of these, are some of the only professionals I've found that can help women begin to establish safety and begin healing immediately. And I felt like with those other therapists, there's just this huge learning curve. And I was paying them (laughs) to train them about betrayal trauma at times. It wasn't helpful. So um, at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, we provide support calls that people can schedule the very day that they need them. So they don't have to wait a week to get into someone. They can schedule them for regular times, like if they're waiting for their son's soccer practice or if they're having a lunch break or if they're on a walk or even if they're on a machine at the gym, which I'm sure the person next to you on the machine would be super excited to hear what you're talking about. But um, our support groups are really affordable and they help women with various recovery topics, like from boundaries to relapse preparedness, we're starting one soon about separation and reconciliation. And we just had a class about how to educate women about how to protect and heal their children and how to talk to their children about what's happening. And we'll also soon be launching a crisis drop-in groups for women in trauma who need a safe place as quickly as possible without having to wait an entire week for an appointment. The reason I wanted to start those is because I actually called the um, domestic violence shelter that night and, um, just because I was like, I don't know what to do. And although they were helpful in telling me, like, go to the doctor and tell them what happened or whatever, in terms of long-term support, it was kind of difficult because there wasn't exactly, like, one point person that could help me or one point person that had all of the knowledge about sexual addiction and the related behaviors. And so I found that that um, APSATS has such a broad view of the whole situation that they can help women more than anyone else. Well, absolutely. They really have devoted their niche to partners of sex addiction trauma, and Barbara Steffens, the president of that group, has written um, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, and there are so many great recovery coaches and clinicians who have said, we are going to make this different for partners. And I love the fact that your partners don't have to wait for the, the help they need right away. You have got to feel like, in some ways, you're meeting a need that was not met for you. Yeah, that's exactly why I started it. I, I felt like, um, even though I, you know, even if I could find someone that understood, getting to see them, you know, they had a, a month waiting list, or, or they didn't understand like the abuse, or my husband would go. It was just so complex. The situation is is very complex, and it takes a while to figure out what's happening. And I think that with APSATS, the multidimensional partner training, the first step is establishing safety and stabilizing the situation. And that, for me, it was such an aha moment. Like, yes, women need to know that, like, the first step is to establish safety, whether that's emotional safety, sexual safety, physical safety, whatever kind of safety that is. Because even through all the seven years of recovery with my husband, I still was not emotionally safe that whole time, even though I wasn't being physically abused the whole time. There was never a therapist that said, okay, look, the first thing we need to do is make sure that your wife is emotionally safe. And so I never had that experience. I was always just kind of hoping and crossing my fingers that the next time he, you know, that 
there wouldn't be a next time of him swearing at me or accusing me of things or um, not of feeling fear, really, of feeling emotional fear. Well, absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because truly the training that I participate in and that I stress with addicts and their partners is that, you know, there's three typical areas that you need to work on with with a partner, and the first is exactly what you said, safety and stabilization. You know, what's going to make the partner feel safe and stable as well as how can the addict do that? And in your situation, the addict couldn't do that. It sounds like he was either too narcissistic or too angry to be able to empathize, validate, and acknowledge what your needs were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Tell us a little bit about um, your own professional background and, and how you came to have the confidence to start the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Program. So I have a master's of education, and I taught on a college level for years, and also junior high, which makes me kind of laugh because many addicts who are not in recovery are kind of stuck at that junior high mentality of emotional maturity. So at my core, I'm a teacher who wants to educate women about betrayal trauma and the ways to heal. So I combined that with my years of blogging and social media experience, and I found that I have a worldwide classroom to teach women about a topic that affects so many of us. And founding this nonprofit practice doesn't make me an expert. So I'm still podcasting and sharing in real time. In fact, today I had a pretty um, intense trauma trigger that came up. I had to breathe through it, especially knowing that I would talk to you tonight. I thought, oh, I have to use my tools tonight. So healing for me is, is in progress still. And the APSATS coaches at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, they are the true experts. And you can read more about who they are or what makes them special at our website, which is btr.org. btr.org. And if they go to btr.org, they'll get on a website that will kind of explain your mission. And it actually has recovery coaches that have been trained and that will help them to feel safe and stabilized. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And you have a podcast um, to help women all over the world. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, my podcast is just me. At first, it was me crying into the microphone. <laughs> like, okay. really, I think I deleted some of the beginning ones because it was just so just me just freaking out and saying, you know, it was really, really was in real time. Uh, uh-huh. But sharing my personal story helped me heal a lot because I was able to process and able to get feedback in a, in a very interesting way. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but for me, it was very healing. I, I learned that my story is kind of full of universal he- themes. When I started the journey, I felt so alone. I felt so scared. I felt so worried, but it turns out that hundreds of thousands of women are experiencing heartbreak, women and men, they're experiencing heartbreak And we all have different personalities and talents, but sexual addicts tend to use the same tactics regardless, you know, the lying, the gaslighting, the narcissistic type behaviors. So it was so nice to know through the power of the internet that all the abuse and betrayal that I had suffered had nothing to do with me. And I, um, I, luckily the podcast has evolved to, to now it's 
not so much me crying into the microphone anymore. Although some days I still will do that. If I start having sort of a trauma episode, I still will say, okay, I'm doing a trauma update. This is where I'm at now. But it's been a year and a half and I'm, I'm pretty much stabilized now and processing and grieving still a little bit. And I think, I hope soon I'll be able to start reconnecting and, and I actually even thought about dating today, which was like a miracle. That was a miracle, actually. <laughs> well, that just shows that you are moving on and that you are getting healthier and healthier to even begin to explore getting into another relationship. Good job. Yeah, it's it's a little scary, but I'm going to do it, I think. I think it's part, even if it doesn't go anywhere, I think it's just part of the recovery process just being able to even go to dinner, you know, with someone and not necessarily expect anything to happen or worry about that, but to, as part of my 12 step to surrender that and to be open to what God has in store for me is exciting. It's it's really exciting. And if the dinner doesn't go well, I can just go home, you know? So I'm just working on knowing what my boundaries are and being healthy myself so that I can attract a healthy person into my life. Well, and you know, let's face it, if I send 50 women out there to do Match.com or eHarmony or whatever, a church group, whatever, probably 45 of them are going to go out on a date and go, whoa, that was not what I wanted to do. That might have even been a waste of my time. And that doesn't mean anything bad. That means, okay, that's one more person. You've checked off the list. You gave it a shot. And it's time for you to decide when the next time is that you want to try it again. Because dating is hard. Finding the right person is hard. But enjoying yourself is really the ultimate outcome for right now. And it's really appreciating the person you're with, even if you decide, yeah, I don't think I need to go out with this person again. But I love the fact that he loved his kids. Or I love the fact that he worked hard. Or... I love the fact that um, he was into me even if I wasn't into him. Mm-hmm. So I am, really appreciate the vulnerable position you're in and want to also endorse the fact that there are a lot of women that haven't been through your betrayal that end up with the same outcome. They leave the day going, whoa, that person definitely mm-hmm. wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm looking at it as a exercise in recovery rather than a, <laughs> I'm ready to find the right person, right? So I feel like I'm still in the phase where this is just part of my recovery. I'm dipping my toe in to see if I can have a healthy conversation with a man at dinner. And if I can, great. Yay. You know, it was a success. And then if I have a hard time, then I can take a step back and, and work my recovery more, call my sponsor, work with an AFAS coach, work with my therapist, and move on from there. I think that I'm just trying to take one step at a time and go really, really slow. Well, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you have shared with me is that your story is full of a lot of universal themes and that... You're on this journey to to help other women and also to get your needs met, to create the life that you deserve. 
Now, tell me a little bit about the benefits of anybody who's listening to this show. What are the benefits if they go to btr.org? And, you know, obviously you've got coaches on there that have their own bios. What, what should they look for? So one of the things that I think everyone can benefit from from coming to btr.org is feeling a sense of togetherness, that they're not alone, that, you know, when I was going through it, I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm opinionated or ask questions or I'm very logical. You know, maybe I need to be more vulnerable or more this or more that. But then I would meet women who were totally different than me, right? They were they were super vulnerable or they were really sweet or they made dinner every night and I don't do that, you know? And I thought, wait a minute, they're experiencing the same things. And so this, all of a sudden it was like, this isn't about me, right? This isn't about me. So that feeling of um, sisterhood, which is why we tar- we only treat women, not because I don't think that women are sex addicts or that men aren't hurt, but for our particular um, organization, I find it's just such a safe place to be with women and feel that safety and feel that togetherness. I love that. Another common thing that many of the women have experienced is secondary trauma by professionals who don't understand sexual addiction and the behaviors associated with it. So they don't understand that this guy who seems really great, right, he seems so nice and he seems so this and that at home, he's scaring her to death. You know, so they don't understand really the lying or the manipulation or the emotional abuse. So to have to come to a safe place where women believe you and they can validate you and they can understand in a way that no one else can because they've experienced it themselves is so freeing. Because sometimes, you know, in even in my neighborhood, I remember um, my neighbor who's the sweetest, nicest person. She she said, you know, I've wanted to help you, but I don't want to take sides, and so I'm not going to help you. And um, I know that someone from betrayal trauma recovery, someone in our group, someone who's experienced it, they would never say something like that. They'd throw their arms around you and give you a hug and be like, I am so sorry. I understand. I understand. And it wasn't because my neighbor is not amazing and sweet person. She just couldn't understand what I was going through, especially because from her perspective, he seemed, you know, like this upstanding, righteous churchgoer, right? So the other thing that I think is really cool is that we're all in this healing process. So I've been consistently working since my husband arrest, but husband's arrest, but it's not a linear process. So we, you know, you go through ups and downs and ins and outs and being able to see someone recover in real time as I have been able to do and willing to do is I think good for everyone. Um, my hope is that they'll see, okay, maybe my process won't look exactly like her process. Maybe I'll experience some different things. As I've talked to women, I can see that like we are all just, it's sort of circular and spiral situation. And so when I get on and say, oh, I feel great today. I feel hopeful. I feel happy. And then maybe a week later, I'm like, I was super triggered today. And it was very difficult. People can understand the kind of normalize the healing process rather than hearing someone and they're, they're like, and then I was amazing in three weeks and I never thought about it again. You know, I just don't think that type of thing is realistic. So having this long-term view of someone's recovery in real time has been 
cool for our community because I think everybody's a little bit more vulnerable as I've been able to be vulnerable. They kind of follow my lead, which is cool, even though um, I'm just, oh, sometimes I'm just a mess, but it's really cool to see everyone be able to be in that place where they're vulnerable. So like right now I'm part of one of our um, recovery apps. Sorry, let me rephrase right now. I'm part of a facilitated group of betrayal trauma recovery. Coach Kat is doing one with intimate treason. And so people can see me make giant leaps forward and then a few steps back. And I don't know, this, this whole process for everyone is, is complex, but it's also in, in some ways, if you understand it and you know what you're looking at, it's actually pretty simple and it's just not very easy sometimes. Okay, so tell our listeners, what is intimate treason? Because they probably don't in- know. Intimate treason is a workbook that helps women process the trauma that they're experiencing. So it has uh, chapters that they can read and then um, questions that they can use to process their trauma and process their experiences. So our group is a workbook group where women write their responses and then they post them inside the group and the group is facilitated by an APSATS coach. So she's able to help them process the information and then other women reading their responses can be like, oh, that's how I felt too. Or that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that way before. So it's a wonderful resource to use. It's, we have it available at btr.org backslash resources. And you can also, of course, get it on Amazon. And for some reason, the author is um, leaving me right now. The, oh, Claudia Black. There we go. It came to me. And I was going to say, she is one of our favorites. And I've got to say, we've had her on the show. And you know, she was the guru of helping children of alcoholics get healthy, and then she started really studying betrayal and found out that the worst of betrayal in any way, shape, or form was partner betrayal. And prior to you coming on the show, I had said that I just went to an EMDR trauma training this weekend, and they said next to parental betrayal, of course, if that's you know, your mother or father abused you sexually, physically, emotionally. The next worst betrayal is partner betrayal. And mm-hmm. and interestingly enough, you identified a third type of betrayal, and that is therapist or institutional betrayal. When your therapist doesn't get it, and they end up saying things like, oh, you need to work harder, or, or you're not appreciating him enough, or oh, you're not having enough sex. That's why he's having all these problems. And they make you the person at fault for your partner, the addict's behavior. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, that, for me, that's actually been the most traumatizing part of it is, the, is that part. Because I, I knew what was going on and I wanted to get help, but all the help I received was just hurting me more and almost giving my ex more ammunition to abuse me. So that was the part that was just so awful. I don't want any woman to go through that. Well, and obviously you have made it your mission to make sure that that does not happen. So one more time, your website, which is super easy, is www.btr.org. 
and people can go to your website and they can find recovery coaches that understand and get them. They can find resources. And, you know, you've got this amazing podcast that sounds like it was very organic. It started with you just emoting and sharing your feelings. And then I'm sure you interview the experts too, people that really can help mm-hmm. partners understand what's going on in their life. Yeah, now that's what it's evolved to. So now most every week, unless I'm doing a Anne Blythe trauma update, I interview one of our coaches or experts. It, all of them have been APSATS trained, which is awesome. So I am gleaning so much from them as I interview them and also as I do my own recovery work. And that is what it's evolved to now, which is awesome. Like the Absats coaches are amazing. And I love like hearing all of their insights and what they have to say and grateful for them for all the hard work that they do in helping women all over the world. Right. And you know what? A lot of the Absats coaches are recovering partners themselves. They've been through it. They know what it's like. They've gotten professional um, education, and they've made their choice to really create a support system for other partners, just like yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the other amazing thing about this work. Yeah, they are so passionate. We've all made it our life's mission to do this. This isn't something, you know, my dad the other day, he said, I don't know if I want you to do this because I love you and I care about you and I'd really like you to move on. And I said to him, Dad, this is my life's mission and there's really no moving on from this. Healthy sexuality affects everyone. It's going to affect everyone all the time, pretty much. It's like nothing that you can avoid. And learning to be emotionally healthy and have healthy sexuality and have strong relationships is what betrayal trauma recovery is all about. And I hope that as my recovery progresses, that people will hear, you know, as I shift and change and grow, like I said, thinking about dating again. But I think that this is not a topic that we can just pretend doesn't exist and move on with like our lives. Because anytime anyone is in a relationship, these types of issues are going to come up. Oh, 100%. And I do believe parents absolutely are so saddened when their child has been traumatized. And certainly what you went through would traumatize anybody. Not only the the partner betrayal, but then the physical abuse that you had to deal with. So I get that your dad would love for you to move on. And... You know, he just doesn't understand that part of your recovery is helping others to make it to make it better for them so that they don't deal with what you have had to deal with. Mhm. Yeah. So now how has journey been for you? You know, I mean, what have been some of your aha moments? I think one of my biggest aha moments is that it is a journey and that it is uh, a process. Because sometimes I feel fantastic and I feel on top of the world and I feel super hopeful. And then other times I get pretty sad. Luckily, the times that I feel hopeful now are, are getting more and more frequent. And the times where I feel sad are getting less frequent. And also when the times I feel sad have occurred, I know I have tools now. 
I have tools. I know what to do. I know how to deal with the trauma. I know how to process it. And so I'm hoping that it will reduce again and again over time. But one, that is one of my biggest aha moments is that it is a process. It's just not something that I can take one course and be like, oh, okay, I'm healed. Hallelujah. I can now never think about that again. You know, it's just a process. And I'm not sure when I will feel peace 100% of the time. I'm not even sure if that's realistic. Does anyone feel peace 100% of the time? Probably not. But. Well, no, I don't think so. And here's what I know to be true. For an addict, it takes them three to five years to develop new neurocircuitry so that they no longer are triggered and have very manageable urges and cravings. Now, I always say it is the partner. Well, I say it's the addict that carries the shame, but it's the partner that carries the blame. And, and pain. I mean, institutions and wrong-meaning friends make partners feel like there was something that they might have been able to do differently that would have changed the outcome. Mm-hmm. And you and I know that that is not true. And and we have to share that message with partners that you are not at fault for your for your addict's behavior. But you really do as partners of loved ones that share an addiction, you really do feel their pain and you feel your own pain because you're the collateral damage. And so what I really encourage partners of sex addicts to do is to understand that this process, too, takes anywhere from two to five years. You know, at year one, you're really in shock and you're just functioning to get through the day and you're trying to make sense of a horrible situation and you're 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 asking yourself my gosh what the heck did I was I in love with an illusion because what you find Mm -hmm. out is that your addict has lied to you about everything in their daily activity so you really go oh my gosh I thought I loved this person now I realize he's an illusion And after that first year, the second year, you start coming out of the fog and you start figuring out what is it that it requires to get healthy. And then year three, you really incorporate those things, exercise, support, recovery coaches, recovery clinicians, the right reading, you know, and you begin to say, I am going to get in good, solid recovery. Year four and five is that recovery plus the normal stuff, lots of self-care, having friends that support you, family members that can give you what you need. And if you can't get it, you really set boundaries to keep that as minimal as possible because you need to be around people that love you unconditionally and support you. Now, who in your life has supported you? My parents have been amazing. Um, they really understand sexual addiction, which is really rare, I think. But they understand it. They're able to really empathize with me. They also were very confused at first, just like I was. They, too, were manipulated. They, too, were lied to. And so in the beginning, when I thought, is he abusive? Is he not abusive? He, he's praying with me. He says the right thing sometimes and then he just loses it. What is going on? You know, they were, they were confused just 
along with me. And then when the arrest happened, my mom was willing to read the books that I was reading. She was willing to tend my children while I went to therapy and while I podcasted or, you know, anything that I needed to do for my healing. She has been so supportive. In fact, she's tending my children right now as we talk. So my parents have been incredible. My support group with my 12-step group has been amazing. Uh, The women in my group are just solid and they're in recovery themselves. And so I just appreciate their insights and also my sponsor. She's been amazing too. And then the AppSets coaches that I've become dear, dear friends with and work with every day have been such a support. And I'm just in awe of the knowledge that they have and how understanding and validating they are with other women. So I've just had so much support. I I know that there are a lot of women, but I know that there are so many women who don't have the support that I have been able to have. Like my parents also support me financially so that I'm able to do this. And that is incredible. So I feel like because I have all the support that I do that, I want to do this for women who don't have that support because I've met women who don't have anyone. There's no one who gets it. Their, their own parents don't understand it. Maybe their friends don't understand it. There are women who just are totally alone and my podcast or maybe even your podcast is like their only thread to feeling not isolated to feeling validated and because I have so much support, I want to share that with other women because I know that it's probably very lonely in their situation. Well, 100%. And, you know, you're right. Your podcasts have really made a difference. and Hopefully mine has too. Um, share with me a little bit about what boundaries have played a part in your healing because boundaries are so important. So before my ex's arrest, when he was in recovery, well, he was not in recovery, but he told me he was in recovery. I didn't understand boundaries at all. In fact, I had heard about boundaries. I People had talked about it, and I thought, well, my boundary is that whenever he, you know, punches a wall or whenever he screams and swears at me, I'm going to tell him that I won't stand for that, right? That's what I thought a boundary was. I didn't understand that, like, I needed to actually get to safety somehow. I thought that I could just talk to him and that somehow that would change something, but it never did. So when the judge issued him a court ordered no contact order, which meant that he couldn't contact me for any reason or come within a thousand feet of my house, I was like, what? Because we have three children together and I did not want to get divorced. And so I was just like, this is crazy. You know, what are we going to do? And I went to the domestic violence shelter to get some Um, counsel from them and I didn't know but a no contact order is pretty common for someone who has experienced emotional or physical abuse so when I started realizing okay this might be an option and how would I go about this then I started thinking about how I could how I could maintain safety in my own life so I knew that I could amend or cancel the order but I didn't know exactly you know what I should do or how to do it. So I decided just to keep it and work on my own recovery. I knew I couldn't go back to the thing, the way things were before. And I could see that my husband didn't seem to be taking accountability. So even though I had this no contact order, I could see a lot of the things that he was doing. I could watch his behaviors. So I could see that he was showing no remorse or creating a plan because he could have talked 
to through a third party to indicate some of those things to me. But he didn't do any of those things. So I kept that boundary. And then I waited patiently to see signs of recovery. But instead, I watched him choose to purchase an overpriced car. I watched him shut down our bank account. And bank records showed that he was online dating and visiting massage parlors. And then friends told me that he was blaming me and claiming that he was the victim, you know, claiming that he had been betrayed. And then he filed for divorce. So with actions like that, there was really no reason for me to discuss anything because I knew that if I tried to enter into a discussion, it would probably just end in me being emotionally abused or lied to. So I actually still keep that boundary 18 months later. And I will continue to keep that boundary until I see some real change. I genuinely love my husband my ex-husband actually, and I really miss him. And I, my hope for him is that he'll find recovery, but unfortunately there hasn't been any. And so for me, that's the only way for me to maintain my safety. And it's also been really freeing to just have that boundary and let him go. It's been hard. It's been sad, but I have found a lot of peace through keeping that boundary. Well, you know, I just so appreciate your devotion you have been through so much and so far what is the time frame from the point of discovery when you first figured out that he had a major problem with sex addiction until now how much time has gone by that was in 2010 okay so actually i'm sorry it was in 2009 yeah okay. it was in 2009 and yeah look at where you've where you've come and where you've gone with that. You really have made a difference in your own life and in the lives of others. So, again, I want to encourage anybody listening to tune into your podcast. And how can they hear your podcast? So I'm on SoundCloud, and we're also on iTunes. So just type in Betrayal Trauma Recovery, and you can find us, or through your podcast you know, app that you have on your phone. They can find okay. it there. Well, Anne, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your own personal story and what you've done to heal yourself and help the many partners who are alone and have no options. They can go to the podcast. It's free. They can get information. They can hear your story, and they can feel that hope, strength, and recovery that you know, you've been going through and that you want other women to go through too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. You take care and keep me posted on how you're doing. I'd love to have you back on the show. I'd love that. That'd be great. All right. You take care. That was Anne, and obviously she is working really hard. Her website is btr.org, and you can go to iTunes and hear her podcast where she interviews recovery coaches and, of course, shares her own personal transformational story and saga with you. You know, obviously this is a woman who has made it her own and who has done the hard work to take her life to the next level. And be thinking about what you can do. I oftentimes ask my um, partners that I work with, to write, a, to write a blog or to submit some stories and that I'll put it on my website. Anything to encourage hope, strength, and recovery in this field and to increase healing and to work through the betrayal and the trauma. 
That's what we're all about here on Sex Help with Carol the Coach. As I say at the end of every show, you know, there will only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. And for partners who are listening, there is hope. And for sex addicts who are listening, you know, you just heard Anne take her life to the next level. Encourage your wife to do the same. And empathize, validate, and acknowledge. And as of tomorrow, there will be a new YouTube video on Sex Help with Carol the Coach for partners and for addicts. And that that uh, YouTube that I've done tonight that will be on tomorrow teaches addicts that they have to empathize, validate, and acknowledge their partners. And when they do that, that's a formula for success, but you have to be consistent. You have to mean it from your heart. And there is hope, strength, and recovery when you do the next right thing. You all have a great week, and we will see you soon.